0: This is music. This is mayhem. This is a high-voltage rock and roll podcast especially for you.
1: Don't think because you haven't heard of us that we didn't exist. We've been here all along like a spirit roaming the night, seldom stopping to rest. Our path has been marked by the bolted skull and bones, smashed guitars, and starred stages across the world. Welcome to the full-on church of rock and roll. This is only the beginning.
2: I got to say for me, there's a few people in in my life that I will literally buy everything that they record. I mean, obviously, Nikki from the Helicopters and, you know, Imperial State Electric and Entombed. Joey C, anything he plays on. Yeah. Um, I even bought a John Joseph solo album. I would never do that again. Um, But Artie Shepard, Arthur Shepard is a guy. That I was lucky enough to work with, and you know, he comes from a band, Aerotype Type Eleven. He was in a band, Instruction, Primitive Weapons, um, Unwed. It, I just anything that guy does, I'm buying it because he's that talented, and it always comes straight from the heart when when he, you know, when he's recording or writing. So he also runs uh, Saint Vitus in Brooklyn. So lucky Great enough, venue. yeah, lucky enough to have him on today. So here we go, Artie. You there?
1: Yeah. What's up, man?
2: How are you been, man?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I just when I just called the number, i, just, I your name popped up. I was like, Oh, I got Tim's number. Oh I right, <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. It's <laughs> weird because you have your own podcast, right? And we've known each other for a long time, but here we are acting like this is a professional thing. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what these things are, aren't they? Yeah, They're exactly. The so how you been? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh just uh, sitting in my my other bar in uh, Park Slope, Brooklyn. Um, just uh, you know, waiting for indoor dining to return on Friday. So yeah, that, uh,
2: is that happening? I can have some more.
1: Yeah, yeah. Nice. On Friday it, it comes well, just 25%, which you know is not, which for me is like 12 people. So yeah, you know? <laughs> but so, it's better than nothing, man. It's like you know, people have been sitting outside in the freezing cold.
2: Yeah, we for, now. we forget that because here you can sit outside, but it's LA, so it's nice and yeah. warm. Or I mean, we're cold; it's like sixty-five right. degrees, and I have a blast <laughs> sweater on. Um, but yeah, so let's let's go back though to the beginning. Like I d- definitely want to talk about Saint Vitus and all your and stuff you got going on now, but your musical career—like, did it start with Aerotype um, Eleven, or what you do before that? No,
1: nineteen ninety, I, was, I was, uh, 1990, uh, started a band called Mind Over Matter, which is uh, now legendary Long Island hardcore band, uh, you know, legendary on Long Island, not much far (laughs) further outside of that. West Babylon. Um, Yeah, exactly. Lindenhurst. (laughs) Um, but yeah, yeah, I I started that and we got signed to uh, a record label called Wreckage, uh, here in New York, uh, in 1992. And, uh, we put out two seven inches and two full lengths and broke up in 1995. Um, And, uh, that was, it was pretty cool. We were, we were sort of like a second wave or third wave, um, 90s hardcore, uh, New York hardcore thing, but we were from Long Island. So that geographically it was a little bit different, but there wasn't a lot going on in the city at that time. Yeah. Um, just like the CDs, not Mays, I've gotten shut down. So all the shows were at wetlands or Bond street, places like that. Um, we did, we did pretty well. And I think, you know, we put out a record, um, the last record we put out in 1995, it was called auto, auto manipulation, um, and that's like a, it's a really. It still stands up. It sounds really good. Uh, it's one I'm really proud of. We did it with a guy named Martin BC who uh, was well known for his work with Sonic Youth and Swans. So we were like we were looking to do we were looking to branch out and do different shit than hardcore at that point, you know. I think everybody was. Yeah. So it, you know, the, the post-hardcore thing was really blooming at that time. So you know. Um, but yeah, that, that band, uh, that band toured through Europe a bunch of times. I mean, like we, I was in Europe when I was 19 on tour and our our drummer was like 16, which was fucking crazy. You know, it's like, just fly over there. And all of a sudden, you know, there you are. I was also in a band called Bad Trip at the same time, which was another New York hardcore band, um, who also toured through Europe quite a bit. Uh, and then, yeah, I quit that band because Walter Schreifles from Quicksand had called me and said he was quitting quicksand or breaking quicksand up and wanted to start a band with me um and that was in that was in september of 1995 and uh so yeah that that uh that started then which was crazy because walter's like the singer of my favorite band he's my favorite singer of my favorite band you know so it was a it was a huge thrill it was you know picture being 22 years old and having that happen Pretty fucking cool and he was signed to island Def jam already so you know i was all psyched to be a rock star which didn't happen <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> when you think it's going to happen it never happens
1: no of course of course
2: and then so then yeah, from there you meet marino and those guys or what after that
1: yeah so so that that band um that band we toured japan we recorded about 150 fucking songs like walter's like insanely prolific wow. um I eventually, which you can find some of that stuff on YouTube. Um,
2: Who's in that band?
1: World's Fastest fastest Car was the name of the band. Um, uh, A guy named, well, it was just me and Walter for the most part. And then we kind of had rotating cast of characters, but there was one main guy, uh, Alex Barreto, who was in Inside Out and Chain of Strength Mm -hmm. and Statue. He now plays in XL. Um, Really great guitar player. Uh, And Sammy Siegler, played drums uh, on a a lot of that stuff as well but it was a constant rotating cast of characters eventually you know, Walter was under a lot of pressure at the time and you know it's like he was touted to be like the new you know, Kurt Cobain, the new Billy Corgan and the universal system at that time, we had to have like eight people approve the demos before they could come out, so it was like totally fucking insane and then we played this show in. I'm not. I'm not going to give the full backstory because it, it would take a fucking hour to tell it. But we played this show with a band called the Co-Stars, which was Luscious Jackson in um, Philadelphia. And the drummer forgot three of the songs, or more than that. He like he was just like staring at the at the sheet, just like counting off four and just playing anything. And it was <laughs> totally embarrassing. Oh, so shit. we That's had awesome. we had all these shows lined up, and like Walter just fucking canceled everything, and that was pretty much the beginning of the end. So I quit, I quit about like maybe six months to a year after that. And that's when I started Aerotype 11, um, which originally didn't have Adam in it. Uh, Adam, uh, the bass player from mind ever matter was the original bass player of Aerotype, uh, and played on the first record. And then I met Adam backstage at a Coney Island high show. He had heard that our bass player was quitting and he came back and he was like, I want to play bass for you guys, <laughs> even though he didn't even own a bass. Uh, he didn't tell me that.
2: Typical Marine. Um,
1: so, <laughs> yeah. So we we tried out a bunch of people. We tried out uh, fucking Scoots from uh, Texas the Reason. We tried mm. a bunch of people. Adam came down and uh, just blew through the set in one shot. So we were like, "You're you're hired. Come on, let's go."
2: <laughs> nice.
1: So that was where. That's how Airtype. I mean, uh, Airtype was already a band at that point. We already had an album out. Um, but then we went on to do the cranky P and fun and rock. Um, and toured through Europe and America a lot. Um, eventually, threw our drummer out, got another drummer in, and <laughs> that's when that's when all the trouble started. Honestly, um, we're being you know courted by a lot of major labels at that time. Um, and then we uh, eventually just our guitar player quit. I signed the, quite possibly the worst publishing deal in the history of publishing deals. With who? About six months before he quit, yeah, with EMI. It was fucking stupid. My, the lawyers were like, don't sign this. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and I was like, because we're going to get $5,000 each. You know, it was like <laughs> just totally dumb. Uh, I, I could do three hours on, you know, the pitfalls of the music industry, although it's a lot different these days. Um, and uh, my guitar player quit, and then I was like, he literally walked out the door, and I looked at everybody, and I go, we're going to change our name we're going to get another guitar player and we're going to get signed to a big record deal within six months. And lo and behold, we got Tom Capone from quicksand Chippy. to join. And we went to England for six months and toured back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It was kind of crazy um, on my credit card, which was also crazy. <laughs> and uh, eventually got, yeah. that was instruction. And uh, we got, uh, we got signed to Geffen. you know, what, like six months later. Yeah. It was in June you got so you, you guys
2: with, with instruction was it air type 11 or instruction that got all the play from like NME and all that stuff
1: it was instruction
2: it was instruction yeah so you guys go yeah. over there and then everyone over here goes crazy for it you get signed to Geffen and they put you in the studio with Bob Ezrin of all people
1: yeah it was uh, it was crazy like the reason that we concentrated on England was because we could get more bang for the buck. Yeah, it was like you know we go and tour over there, and it would only be a two week tour, and you know most most of us at that point still had jobs, so we were like coming back to work, and which didn't last very long. But the um, yeah, it was very much uh, a concentrated effort. Plus, we had management over there, and we had a big booking agent. So like within six months of our existence, we were playing the main stage at Download, wow. which was fucking that was like insanity, you know and. I had fifty dollars in my bank account, and you know, waiting for the for the Geffen advance to come through. But uh, but it was it, in the end of the day, it was it was smart because you know, again, we could we were getting press coverage, and we were able to hit an entire country, which was a huge market, in a short period of time. It was very very concentrated, and once you get that sort of hype over there, it just snowballs, and that's really what it did for us. The biggest mistake we made. Was actually moving to Los Angeles and making the record there, mm. where we should have we should have just stayed in England and continued in England because I mean you were working for Universal at that time, and you know like nobody wanted nobody like you know nobody at Geffen wanted Bob Ezrin to to produce the record, you know they they wanted uh, with a Howard Benson. I was gonna say it had to be or, Howard Benson. You know, had to be how yeah because all those new metal fucking yeah. jerk offs you know like whatever <laughs> yeah like I, 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 and I couldn't I couldn't do a fucking record with Howard Ben I I, I, I met with him he wore sandals and socks and sweatpants to what the fuck show. <laughs> really? yeah forward. I mean I was like really <laughs> I yeah I mean I was like your records sound cool but you know like, you know I just I, I wasn't feeling it and Edwin was <laughs> really really fucking cool um just like one of one of the coolest you know older guys i'd ever met and and i thought it would be a cool experience to make an old school record with an old school guy um you know whether or not it was the right choice is another story but i think really the folly behind all of that was uh, was that they didn't release our album for a year and then they didn't release it in england for a year and a half so we had done all of that work building up our hype in england and then we just disappeared and you know and then like you know what's fucking the president of geffen what's run, well, i'm forgetting his jordan sure uh, yeah he was like he's like that's all right man like all arrogant and shit like we're gonna break you over here and then you'll go back there as heroes and i was like no it's probably not gonna happen but that's cool um and it's just like i think geffen at that point had a string of really sort of like bigger releases not bigger but like medium range releases like cold and uh was it Fevery Corporation? Was that the name of
2: the band? Yeah, that that um, was on there. But you are right. It was cold. There was there was the Rooney, but it was at that time of the Ashley Simpson debacle and all of that was going on. And you know, once the Ashley Simpson stuff was happening, that's where Jordan was turning his attention to. Even when we brought Rise Against over, well, was—you know—it was just like yeah, they well, didn't I mean, care.
1: yeah, Tim, I I sat a fucking meeting <laughs> with when, when DreamWorks uh, got sucked into to Universal they had brought all these bands in. So they brought in Sparta and Rise Against and
0: mm-hmm. like
1: you know, like the, the the roster of rock bands doubled and so suddenly they had the same budget but double the amount of bands to give it to. Yeah. And you know, so and, and Jimmy Iveen from the top was just like it's gonna be all pop and hip hop because it's so much cheaper to to for to do that than to start a rock band. Yeah. You know, and get a rock band going. So you know it was like we just fell victim to that. I sat in a meeting literally with Rise Against a&R person, this woman, I forget her name. And it was just like, sorry, guys, you guys are you guys are getting passed over by Rise Against because they knew that Rise Against would sell 50,000 copies in the first week because they were on Warp Tour and they had a built in indie following, you know, and it was just like you lose. And then they all look better. You know what I mean? And they got the push.
2: Well, yeah. It was so, like, I mean, because I was there. I always
1: hate Rise Against for that. <laughs> always hate <laughs> that. They're,
2: they're swell, fella. I love that, band, You know that, though. But I love you as well. But I, I think a lot of it at the time was so Geffen, Interscope was going to split in, in, into Geffen, right? And and buy up MCA. So all of a sudden, Geffen at, at the beginning was only the MCA band. So it was like Blink-182 and all that kind of shit. And I'm standing there like, why am I working with this stuff? I hate this. Until you guys came along, which was great. You and, and Rise Against. Um, but you, you put out a great album that Ezrin did. It it was called God Doesn't Care. And Jimmy Iovine is the one who, went, who told you to name it that, didn't he?
1: yeah. We played. We, we normally wouldn't play that song live because the live version had this whole, like, improv jam, and it's about ten minutes long live. So we were doing it on tour with Papa Roach, which I think was that's when we played the Troubadour.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, and every time every time we would play, whoever we were playing with at the time was Papa Roach. Their their drummer would come out and jam with us on the song. So we did it that night at the Troubadour. And you know the, the song is called "God Doesn't Care If We Blow Up the Fucking World," which was you know my genius idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna write this seven-minute song with a spoken word bit, you know, for our major label record. It's you know, a great called song, "God Doesn't Artie. Care If We Blow Up the Fucking World," and then go and then go play through, through the Bible belts for, for the next two years. That uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a fucking marketing genius. But the um, uh, yeah, so that night we played it, and Jimmy Iving came backstage, and he's got his hat all low, and he's like hey, what was that last song you played? And I was like, <laughs> uh, it's called God Doesn't Care. God Doesn't Care. That's the name of your record. <laughs> and then my guitar, my guitar player, Joe, whispers in my ear as I'm talking to Jimmy Ivy and he just goes, this guy looks like a fucking child toucher.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: oh my God. Grillo is the best. That fucker doesn't give a shit about anything. I love that guy.
1: Oh my God. Except for politics. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, I like basically broke broke out laughing. And Jimmy's like looking at me like I'm weird, and then Jimmy just goes, don't worry about it. Jordan, Jordan's like a shark. He, he grabs one. He's going to grab the industry and push this record through. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? <laughs> like, this is it's fucking weird. This whole thing is fucking weird. Oh,
2: I got to tell you a story about that song. Because I, I went out on the road with you guys. You were opening for, I think, Puddle of Mud, right?
1: Oh, God, help me. that right. Yeah. yeah.
2: So so they had genius shirts. It, they had a great song, instruction, a great song, Your Punk Sucks, right? And they had shirts that said that. So everyone would buy those shirts. I was I was helping you guys out with merch. I do merch. By the time you got done with Halfway of God Doesn't Care, everyone's trying to return the shirts to me. Because it's like a little bit after 9-11 and you're saying shit about that and... And the whole God doesn't care thing. People are like I don't want this shirt anymore, and I'm trying to. I'm like I can't give you your money back. Like you put me in a bad spot, Artie. That's all I'm saying from the stage. Sorry, man. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: oh yeah. Dude, well, you know what was funny? What was funny about that is that like so I I did I developed that whole spiel in England, where they you know God doesn't exist in England, so it's okay they don't care. But Like it was like fucking you know I did the whole. It was like a Jane's Addiction mixed with my own thing. It was like, um, Jesus is the enemy, Allah is the enemy, God's the fucking enemy, War's the enemy. Yeah. And that, and then the song would kick back in. And it worked like a fucking charm in England. They were going nuts. They were like, oh my God, this is so fucking cool. Like, this guy actually has something to say. And then I did it over here, and it was like, I was fucking the devil. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Like, I mean, dude, I did that song. I did that song at a fucking uh, – we played a military base. Uh, on, top, on tour with Papa Roach in Fort Wal- Walton Beach in Florida. And the people were spitting on me, <laughs> like spitting on, throwing shit at me. Like oh, This is like, America. Like, I, I had to be escorted out of the building. Oh, man. But, and they, they were still spitting, we fought for your freedom. I'm like, no, you didn't. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> what are you doing here at a Papa Roach show? Shut up. You know, like, yeah right.
2: Exactly. Don't, know, too, don't you have something better to do? Oh, that's fucked up. I'm like, sorry. Seriously,
1: but I mean, I, I don't blame them. And it was it was poor judgment of me to do that. But uh, I, it, I I have an even better story though. That uh, that puddle of mud, the puddle of dumb, <laughs> the band puddle of dumb, as I like to call them. Yeah. Um. The uh. So the first show of that tour, this was the first tour of America we did. The first show of that tour was in Toledo, Ohio, and. Wes is up on stage. He's
2: oh my God. i remember, obviously,
1: that. obviously obliterated drunk and it's like fucked up. And like, you know, I'm at the merch table in the back and you know, Bill McGathey also managed puddle mud. So like Corey, Corey and Bill have sort of warned me, you know, like, like this guy's a loose cannon and you know, like all this other shit. So the, uh, so the, he's on stage and he just like sucks. He's terrible. And he keeps saying stupid shit. And his whole band just walks off stage. So he's standing there with his guitar and he starts playing, starts playing guitar and he starts making up a song. Toledo Toledo, <laughs> And, and like, we're just like fucking like, what the fuck? And Adam was backstage. He had food poisoning. So he's laying on a couch and, and the fucking dude, one of the, I guess it's the guitar player, the bass player at Puddle Mud, Paul, I think it was, he, he like unclicked Wes's strap and his fucking guitar just fucking fell. And at this point, people are just throwing shit at Wes, like whipping shit at him. Wow. And he goes in the back and he starts throwing shit. And he's like j- jumping on Adam going, come on, man. Let's <laughs> fucking fuck. like and, and, and I'm just like, oh, God, I got diarrhea. Like, <laughs> and, and, and so so this the show piles out. I'm on the phone with Corey from McGathey and I'm like, yo, dude, uh, so I guess the tour's canceled because you uh, like, what the fuck is up with this guy? Because as it turned out, Wes is walking out. He has a police escort. As he sees a police car right by the bus, he decides to spit on the police car. So the cops immediately cuff him, throw him in the fucking car, bring him to jail. The fucking crowd is, like, shaking the tour bus like they're going to try and flip it. I mean, it was, I was like, what the fuck is going on? And, uh, and so he wound up spending the night in jail, and then they let him out. And we, Corey was just like, go to the next show, dude. Just don't worry about it. Just go to the next show. I was like, all right, cool. So we get there, we're backstage, and Wes walks in wearing his fucking orange jumpsuit jump from jail. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, he's like, hey, guys, hey, <laughs> hey, I'm really sorry about last night. You know, with his fucking teeth all fucking bland and shit. Yeah. Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was just like, oh, my God, what the fuck? He's like, yeah, isn't this cool? they let me keep it. <laughs> oh, my God, dude.
2: Hey, hey, guess who had to bail him out of jail? You? That would have been me. Yeah, I got the call. Uh, Cause he, remember, he whipped a, a beer bottle into the crowd at the end before he walked off.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah.
2: What a nightmare that night was. That was fun though. Um, but the album was great. <laughs> I mean, was you know, I I think for me, I'm not a big Bob Ezrin fan. And the one thing I loved about you is like, I remember you giving a presentation about Bob Ezrin, and everyone's asking you like, "Well, I hate Kiss and I hate Alice Cooper, but I love Yes and and Pink Floyd, and those that's why I wanted Bob Ezrin," which. It's sacrilege to a lot of people, but you're right because when it comes to Ezrin, for me, his stuff just sounds weird. But your album sounds, to this day, so, sounded great. You know what I mean? It's very well, crystal clear it, sounding. It oh, doesn't have that that edge or that like sludge that Ezrin usually puts on an album.
1: Yeah, well, I mean it, that I, I will say that that had a lot to do with Brian Virtue, the oh, engineer, okay. um, and he was a huge reason as to why we wanted to work with Bob because. You know, we had heard the James Addiction Strays record, which isn't a great James Addiction record, but it sounds fucking phenomenal. It's really bright. It really sounded great on radio. And we were like, I want that guy. How do I get that fucking guy? And as it turned out, Ezrin, So during the recording of the record, Ezra's life was like all over the place. He had sold his place in the Hollywood Hills and he moved to Connecticut. Um, his best friend was Michael Kamen. Michael Kamen died in the middle of the recording, mm. um, which is how I got to talk to David Gilmore on the phone, which was fucking awesome. Um, and so, thank you, Michael Caiman. Um, for dying. For the, uh, <laughs> oh, for dying. Um, but the uh, for dying. But so Bob had to put together the memorial service for Michael Kamen in London. So like we had like, Annie Lennox was calling and David Gilmore because so they all played it, and um, it was it was just. So Bob basically disappeared for two weeks while I did almost all the vocals for the record. And, you know, so it was just me and me and Brian, who I actually went on to make a bunch of records with uh, moving forward when he kind of, like, moved up. He became Rick Rubin's boy after that and did the a, a Slave record, I think, and then he went on to produce his own shit. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that Brian was a huge reason as to why that record sounded so good and subsequently why the next Godfires Man record or the Godfire's Man, which was the band after instruction we did with Brian. And that sounded fucking phenomenal. It's my favorite yeah. record I ever put out. It's great doing Balconies Facing the Sun. Um, but yeah, it's uh, crazy. And through, through that whole period, actually, I was playing in a band with Joe called Gay for Johnny Depp, which was around from 2002 to 2011. Um, and that band actually got pretty big in England, which was fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> so like the year that, the year that, Instruction broke up. Gay for Johnny Depp toured in England, I think, like three times. And Godfather's Man started, and also went to England. And uh, you know, it was like it was very, uh, very productive. Although I'm not sure if Gay for Johnny Depp, you would call productive. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, ridiculous.
2: Yeah, but you know, when it when it comes to and the last thing on um, God doesn't care is I will say if you guys or I'm sorry if Brenda would have chosen. Uh, I'm Dead as a second single, that album would have been massive, dude.
1: Well, Tim, if you remember correctly, so it was uh, Gary Spivak, mm-hmm. um, who is the booker for Danny Waymer Presents, Yep. and now is his job. I have a lot of connection with those guys still, which is very cool. That that universal connection went a long way for me. Um, the uh, So Gary Spivak, they did like, I don't know what they used to do back then. They do like experiments or tests, market tests with songs and uh this is for all the kids who don't don't know how the record radio business works because there is no radio anymore um they would do test markets so they would have like phoners right is, am i right yeah you're right am I, yeah so so they would test out a song and see how much response they got from it so breakdown was the song that they got the best response from and we were on tour with corn at the time when the record came out and lincoln park so it was like you know, putting a song like I'm Dead out while you're on tour with Korn, I kind of agreed at the time, although I was very trepidatious because I was like, dude, I'm Dead's the hit. Yes. I'm Dead's the reason I have a record deal. And, you know, it, it should have been the first single. We did release it as a single, but, and we made a video for it. But at it, the yeah, end, we got, yeah, at the end, we, we were dropped by the time it hit radio. And, but it still it actually still charted, if I remember correctly. But it was, uh, you know, it was that was a sad story because I, I really wish that song had gotten a chance to, to shine. The, the- I wish I had fought. I wish I had fought a little bit harder. I was I was very much in this vein of like, well, these people have these jobs for a reason. They know better than me. You know, so like, who am I to argue about this? I, I and, think- I, and I feel like that was that was actually why a lot of the people at the label, you know, I became friends with because I wasn't an asshole. Yeah, we we all lo- we all yeah.
2: loved you, and but I think you guys were probably exhausted at the end because of all the shit happening on the road. And I'm not going to mention because it's someone's personal God problem.
1: Oh yeah, I but, forgot Tim. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I was a babysitter the for Dora, a while. Detroit. Yeah, the and Chicago. We don't
1: have to name. Nick- oh, Chicago, right? Chicago, yeah. yeah. We, we, oh, sorry, Detroit was where the drugs were bought. Yes, I, was I, was not, I again.
2: Someone's personal. Ba- I love that person to death to this day. I wish I could talk to him more but um, you guys are exhausted there's, there's no question about it um, and and the thing about the call out research and, and kids don't understand this they would call you on your phone and play music over your phone that tells you what made it onto the radio <laughs> it it would be like it'd be like kid rock bawada Biddy or whatever that shit is and then something cool on that so yeah obviously something you know that's a little bit heavier is going to work on on like breakdown over call out research but you can't hear anything i remember this band drain sth that i had and like, what do you do? Like you try to get on call out research, but it's going to sound like shit over the phone. You know it's what I like mean? like back
1: to the future. That is the, yeah. I, Tim, I'm glad you explained that because I, I never knew that that's how it was done. That's fucking asinine.
2: It was asinine. <laughs> it's horrible, man. And it, and it caused horrible problems for music quality for 20 plus years. Um, wow. So so after that, and you know, you, you do all the other stuff, eventually you get back into stuff you you worked with T with unwed which i i love that album so much man
1: like oh me too yeah oh yeah that that was cool i mean well got man put out two records um and then we we had an awful tour in europe um i was actually gone for eight weeks i did a uh, got man did mainline europe and then gay for johnny depp did england again um and i was gone for like eight weeks or something it was a fucking crazy uh, <laughs> It was a really very long, uh, arduous situation, but the um, yeah we, we were like basically sitting at the airport like I think we're done I think it's over so Godfather's Man ended, gave Johnny Depp continued on uh, and then when Primitive Weapons started right in between that um, and then Primitive was basically Primitive was with uh, some of the uh, partners at St Vitus um, so that all kind of went together um, Primitive just recently sort of went on hiatus. We put out three albums. Um, uh, in the interim, I was also played bass in a band called Aegis.
0: Yes.
1: That uh, is one of my favorite records I've ever been involved in. I didn't write much of it besides the bass lines, but um, I love the singer's voice is like fucking awesome. It kind of sounds like hot snakes. It's pretty cool. Because um, anything John Reese related is ultimately really cool. Um, <laughs> it's just the way it rolls to so John Reese related. It sounds like John Reese, whatever. It's cool.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and yeah. And then when I, I, I took a break from ages for a bit and during that time is when Jason, uh, Jason, uh, Black, uh, and Nelty, uh, got married and moved to New York. And oh, Jason Black is the bass player for hot water music. Um, and probably the greatest bass player in punk rock history. Yeah, hands so down. Um, that's a it's bold like, statement,
2: dude. dude he I'm, is so I'm good. i mean, Hot water music has like some no. Of the best I, I get it. Albert. I I know that, but there's a Matt Freeman out there. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, dude. that's true.
1: I'm yeah.
2: And Adam I, 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 Marino.
1: I, <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that bass tone. Course, but Adam, you know, Adam was a Adam was a guitar player. I and mean, He was in a band called Phacia that was you know, screamo, really popular screamo band. So you know, Adam doesn't play bass traditionally.
2: Which I love. Whereas
1: Jason, Jason's a traditional style bass player, but he can play as good as Getty Lee. Yeah. You know, but he's just like the thing about the thing about Jason, and the reason I say that is because uh, you know, like with Hot Water and with uh, the Draft yeah, and the like draft any just. of the fans he's been in, he like you know, I, I remember we toured with Hot Water with our type a million times, and and sometimes he'd just be like Jesus, you know, like all these songs can sometimes they kind of blend into one, you know, it's <laughs> like yeah. kind of punk rock. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it took me a minute to realize like that my body was moving all the time, whether I liked the song or not. Yeah. And hot is a great band, but like, like my body was moving and everybody else's was moving because the rhythm section was that fucking good. Like that's, and that was, you know, a turning point in my life where like realizing how important the bass is, as an instrument. And to me, it's to this day, it's the most important instrument in any band because if you like, it's just, it, it sits in the, it sits in the backbone of things, but like it's making you move. Yeah. And course. that's really like the key behind it. And, and so Jason playing with Jason was extraordinary. Like we, we record, we were recording with Brian McTernan, you know, on web record and he recorded all his tracks straight into the board. Hmm. I mean, he didn't even use an amp. He what? just fucking straight into the board played, and then they reamped everything afterwards to get the tones that he he wanted. It, that record is is really really fucking good. Um Nelty did an incredible job on it. Yeah, um, she's
2: amazing on that. Re- I love the, her. The
1: songs are basically the songs are basically split where I wrote all of, all of my songs, Jason wrote all of his songs and then Nelty kind of brought it together with the vocals. So it was a uh, really it was really organic. It was probably I would say that band was the easiest band I've ever played in. First of all, because none of them drank, except for me. So when we were on the road, I never had to drive. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. I like that criteria already.
2: (laughs) <laughs> but but it, that it album it's just like a, like it's great it's a one shot it's it's just a creative process it's just there and it's, it's a wonderful I mean down to the cover which is unique you know what I mean I don't even know the story behind it but it, everything about that just has a certain overtone which is just we created this and moved on
1: yeah well it's that, I mean it's unfortunate that that really wasn't like we the intention was not to just make one record we wanted to continue on but those guys wanted to get out of New York um so first first our guitar player moved to Florida, then Melky and Jason moved to Florida, and we had already started writing new material which is now going to come out on like my solo stuff which you know like I, I kind of wrote all the vocals, all the bass, all the drums, you know, I, I you know whatever for whatever that's worth. But um yeah, it, it it's a shame that it couldn't it didn't continue. But yeah, it's 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 cool. And anybody who's never heard of it before, goes, Go check it out. Not Unwed Sailor, but Unwed.
2: <laughs> just Unwed. Female <laughs> vocalist. It's, it's really good. Yeah, super so rad. And then Primitive Weapons, which you know, I'm mad at you for breaking that up because I love that band so much. You guys destroyed when well, I saw we, you?
1: In all honesty, we didn't really break up. Um, we just kind of like, we're like, uh, uh, so what happened was like, so we, we got, we were signed to uh, Prosthetic Records on our first record, mm-hmm. um, our first album, and that didn't work out. At all, like I'm not going to get into the situation, but it, it was not cool. It was very uncool. I bet. Um, we finally we finally got out of that, and then um, we made a record on our own. We paid for it ourselves, and then um, uh, Ben Wyman from Dillinger Escape Plan heard it and wanted to put it out. And we were like, "All right, cool." So he put it out. He took us on tour a bunch from that final uh, Dillinger tour which was really great. And, you know, he's a, he's an amazing guy, incredible guitar player. Um, and, and their, their crowd was actually really receptive to us. It was, it was kind of nice, but with each record, primitive weapons got more and more sort of uh, I'll say nineties with more clean singing, you know, less metal. It was, it was definitely leaning back towards my past more post hardcore basically. Mm. Um, and with the last record, Surrender Yourself, which is one of my favorite records I've ever made, I think it's fucking incredible. But no one ever even knew it came out. It literally just, like, was put out and just disappeared. And it, I have to say that, it like, it, was, it really took a toll on me. I was like, I was like, oh, man, maybe I'm just too old for this game. And, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I mean, I am too old for this game. But, you know, <laughs> playing, playing music is not something that is an age you know, has an age to it. You just do it because you have to, you know, but like it was, uh, I just was kind of like, eh, maybe we shouldn't like, I don't, I I basically didn't want to not sing anymore. I wanted to sing again. Yeah. So that was kind of where that came from. And Dave wanted to play, uh, Dave Castillo wanted to do his whole dance music thing. So, you know, he went off and did that. So it it was, you know, it's just kind of the way it worked, but it was all cool. You know, it was like, we, we we had a lot of fun. We did we did this crazy tour that Brooklyn Brewery paid for, where we played uh, seven shows in eight days on six, in six different countries or something. Wow, it was fucking nuts. We like we we, we played in London, we played in uh, we played two shows in Norway. We played in Helsinki. We played in Munich. It was just like you know, wake up at six in the morning, get on a flight, get to the town, sound check, play. It was fucking wild. It was That's super rad. fun. So that was a cool way to kind of go out. But we also did the last tour we did, we did with this band called Colt Leader, um, who were fucking awesome. But we were like, we were playing, and like there was one show that we had to drive like eight hours to Lexington, Kentucky, to play for 30 people in like this little tiny bar. And I was just on stage going like, what the fuck am I doing? I got a kid at home. Like, <laughs> like I can't do this. I can't do this shit anymore. It's like, at least that way I can't do it. You know, it's like, it made me uh, it made me have to look at a lot of shit. Yeah, you know? dude, we when, actually, when you're just dying to get back to the
2: hotel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We actually got to see you um in Austin, Texas for yeah. South by Southwest it was like the Loudwire yeah, um showcase. Trip. Yeah, with Power Trip, dude. That show was awesome. Oh like, yeah.
0: It like the floor like was like there was beer everywhere, so like everyone was slipping, and it
2: felt like the whole room was shaking. Like super tiny venue, but like you guys absolutely killed it, and that was like the first time I met you with Tim. Um, and I yeah, still have you, that picture already. Yeah, I you guys it. are you guys are great, man. And then you know, obviously, Power <laughs> Trip is rad too. So rest in peace, rad. Oh
1: yeah, Power Trip was fucking great. Yeah, they, they that that was a really I think we played five times on that stop by trip, and that was definitely the smallest room we played. We played with Pentagram at the yeah. outdoor stage, which yeah. was really fun. But uh, it, yeah, that was wild, man. That was such a whirlwind. It, like I, if I remember correctly, it was like all the gear was out on the street for everybody. Yeah, was there like was like a, a side street. Show. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You had to run it through. Like, because every time you guys were playing, we had something to do because we were there for what we were doing. And then that was the one show. It's like, fuck, I'm going to this show no matter what. And I remember I, I made someone fill in <laughs> for me somewhere else because I'm like, I'm not going to miss it. I'm not going to miss Artie. I'm not going to miss Primitive Weapons. And I think we had Power Trip at the time anyway. So, yeah. But it was cool, man. It was a great time. So, from that, oh, thanks, man. Yeah. From that, you go and you start St. Vitus. How does that come about?
1: Well, Save Let actually started, uh, actually, say St. started before Primitive Weapons started. Um, sort of, well, we had signed a lease by then. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's an old story, you know, a couple of bartenders want to open their own place. Um, so we did, you know, we, we got lucky. We found a space, we had investors and, uh, you know, again, signed probably some of the worst deals you could ever imagine because we're just like, you know, not very good at business. Um, but we got really lucky. You know, I hired Dave Castillo to be our booker um, from day one, even though we we really weren't going to be uh, a music venue. We had no intention of being a full-time music venue because it, the, the way St. Vitus is situated, it's like in between a bunch of apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. So anytime we had dance play, like the neighbors just completely lost their shit. So that, that went on until we soundproofed and, and, and beyond. I mean, oh dude, it was like, like I, I literally have lost years off my life dealing with that situation. But um, we also owed our investors a lot of money and they wanted it quickly. And it was like, okay, well what brings people? And you know, after a year of business, we were like, the shows bring people. So, you know, our first show was liturgy, um, if I remember correctly. And, uh, actually our first show was Primitive Weapons, but mm. nobody knew about it. We just played to test the place out. But yeah, so we did that. And then, and then it kind of like, we had this moment um, where Tony Iommi was doing a book signing um, on Long Island and in New York City. And we were like, I looked at the advertisement for it. And I was like, why the fuck was it, wouldn't he do one in Brooklyn? <laughs> and it was like, why the fuck wouldn't he do one at St. Vitus? And it was like, you know, nobody does book signings at a fucking bar. But we were like, why not? So I called Dave and I was like, "Dave,
0: do
1: you do you know these publishers?" He's like, "In fact, I do." And within and two hours, he was like, "Yeah, Tony Iommi going to do a book signing wow. at the bar," That's and amazing. we were like, "What?" And so that was that was really like the first moment that that we had at St. Vitus where we were like, "You know what? We can do anything we fucking want. We just got to ask and we got to pay for it." You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Although Tony Iommi That's was all. free, <laughs> yeah. but. But, but it was like that sort of creative thinking, you know, like, and, and Dave kind of went with it. When when we let Dave off the leash, he just fucking became a fucking powerhouse and just, you know, it was like, hey, man, can we get this band? Sure. You know, like, and then, you know, the next big thing I think was The Descendants and Hot Water Music, which was um, Riot Fest was happening down the block and it got a hurricane hit in the middle of rock, so they canceled it. And... Um, I got a phone call from Jason Black and he was like, hey, man. Uh, actually, I texted Jason. I was like, Jason, do you guys want to play now? Because hmm. I originally asked him to play a secret show. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah. And he calls me. He's like, oh, what kind of gear do you have? Blah, blah, blah. And he holds the phone for a second. He goes, hey, you want The Descendants to play too? And I'm That's like, awesome. That's so badass. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now, I'm going to openly admit, I don't like The Descendants at all. What? But I, <laughs> I get like, you, Artie. Fuck it. Yeah, of course. It's, hey, look, man, I know it's good for me. <laughs> so anyway, to, Dude, so I, was like, I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, man, bring him. So while this is happening, Riot Fest tweets out to the fucking every person who was at the show, 5,000 people, that the show had moved. To oh, Saint shit. Vice. Oh, man. Wow. And this was about a 10-minute walk from oh, – so shit. they were on the, on the waterfront at Williamsburg. I go to buy a new drum head for the, for the, for the drum kit at the bar. I come back. There's kids running down the block. There's 400 fucking people oh in the building. God. Oh my god! So we didn't like we didn't have security. We, like nobody had shown up for work yet, because it was six o'clock in the afternoon. So it was like I was bartending with my my partner George, and 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 like and we were just like, okay, what's up? You know, like what like what the fuck? This is crazy. I, I looked at Justin, my partner Justin. and I was just like, Justin, stand at the door. Do not let anybody else in. Okay. The line was two thousand people long. Oh my God. It literally wow. wrapped. Like I was just like, we're totally going to get shut down. And no matter how many, and it's raining out too. Jesus. So all these kids were stuck and standing out in the rain. Like, and no matter how many times I told people, I was like, guys, nobody's getting in. So just leave, wait, leave, leave, please. Like the kids were drinking on the line. They're pissing in people's fucking front. <laughs> like it was such a shit show. I totally thought we were going to get shut down. And on top of that, there was. So, Dude, so the Descendants, Bill Stevenson had this massive drum thing. Like, we get it in the building. They wouldn't let anybody in the back room. If anybody who hasn't been to St. Vitus, if you haven't been, come when we reopen, please. Um, <laughs> the, the, there's a front room with the bar, and then there's the back room, which is where the show is. So there's 400 people in the building. St. Vitus is small. So <laughs> Bill Stevenson, like the band, the Descendants won't let anybody into the back room while they're sound checking and setting up. So there's 400 people in the front room. There was literally 40 people in each bathroom on top of each other. Cause they were all waiting to rush to the front. When, when we opened the curtains, it was like a, it was like a dam ready to burst. It was fucking insanity. So this show goes off and you know, it was, it was cool. It's like Milo walks in with his backpack and he's like, you know, hot water music was on. He's like, Hey man, uh, I'm playing tonight. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, dude, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> He's
0: got his water, his yeah. water Go down pack. Go downstairs. Yeah. Go
1: downstairs. But it was, you know, it was that night was was a really inspirational night because it was like we. I felt like we have we were able to pull off something that was 300 kids' favorite experience of their entire fucking life.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know
1: what I mean? Like, and, and there's something to be said for that. but it's it's very uh, addictive that feeling of being able to provide that sort of, that sort of thing. And that's really what St. Vitus became after that. Like after that show, we were then able to book Carcass, um, which was fucking amazing. And then, you know, like we kept having late night shows against me, uh, uh, Six Day, uh, Braid, like all these like cool shit. Like it was the thing to do to play like at one o'clock in the morning after your show at Irving Plaza, you'd come over to St. Vitus and play. And then of course Nirvana, which you know, was, was really the, the big story of, you know, of St. Vitus and it still is to this day. I mean, you know, the, the Nirvana show was surreal, but also like, but it was surreal in the fact that I thought, I, like, I felt like I was watching television. Yeah. I was I'm like, sure. you know, cause it's, these are people you only see on television. So yeah. I'm just watching, I'm watching television right now, you know? It's like, you know, to have Dave Grohl come up and be like, man, thanks for letting us do this. I'm like, are you serious?
2: <laughs> Dude, so, man, I, listen, I, yeah. if Joan Jett would have been the singer from Nirvana the whole time, I would have liked Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I,
1: come I, on, man. You know me already. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I, I even went, I, you know, it's so funny. Like after that show, I went back and put to unodoro Odaro because I had never really listened to it all the way through. And, you know, because it's like Nirvana is part of the con- subconscious of everybody, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and Especially like Tim. so I never really listened to it. I listened to it and I was like, this record's fucking, this is a cool indie record. Like I never knew. Yeah. So man, like, I kind of, I, I can't, <laughs> I renewed my love, my love for that band after that night. Uh, but that, uh, w- one funny anecdote about that is that that gig Grohl flew his production company in to film it. Mm. So that night was, had a full five camera shoot in that room and it's, yep. And it's all been edited, and I, I haven't seen it, but my partner George has seen it. And uh, apparently HBO offered a bunch of money to Dave Grohl for the footage, um, which he said no to. And um, yeah, I don't, I'm not really sure what's going to happen with it, but I, I bet you it'll see the light of day. I think the only reason it wouldn't see the light of day is because Krishno Veselic was so drunk <laughs> that... Like, I mean, he hit so many bumps, Dude, he had a pint glass full of Maker's Mark. Oh, shit. damn, dude. Get it. And he was already <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. He was already, I mean, he oh showed God. up.
0: That was they, the sober they had I'm up.
1: Played. Yeah, they, right. They had already played at the Barclays Center that night. So everybody was fucked up. I mean, like, oh, shit. you know, besides all the, you know, there was tons of sober people. I mean, the average age was like 55 at that fucking thing. And by the time Nirvana ended, there was probably 50, 50 to 100 people there. Yeah, because like, everyone you know, had cool to get home to their. Yeah,
2: everyone had to get to their <laughs> it babysitters. It this in is the this is amazing, but I gotta go no, home.
1: <laughs> Dude, they went on at got two a.m. Oh shit! Yeah.
2: they went
1: they went on at two a.m. They they played for two hours. Wow! You know, it was like it was it was pretty impressive. You know, it's like I, I felt lucky that I got to get a selfie with Dave because like he was like wiped out, and his wife was pregnant. She was six months pregnant. We were downstairs like jamming some beers and shit, and like fucking. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a wild time. But what was crazy is so I left the bar at 7.30 a.m. I got a cab and came home. And we let one person from the press in, one person and one photographer, which we didn't tell anybody about, that they were in there. And they, uh, he wrote a story. I guess it was for Brooklyn Vegan. Mm-hmm. It was Fred Pizarro. And, and um, by the time I woke up, then, like three hours later at 10.30 in the, in the morning, it had been reposted 2,000 times Jeez, in, like,
0: yeah.
1: 150 different languages. It was the craziest <laughs> shit I'd ever seen. My phone, I had, like, fucking thousands of messages, all from England, because they were ahead. And they were like, they're <laughs> like are you fucking serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. Yeah, that, was a, that was wild. And, and again, that, that, like, you know, led to more late-night shows, because everybody wanted to do it. It's a thing to do. It's cool. And, uh, yeah, it, it's... a. Uh, it, it's been, it's been a wild ride, but I mean, that was a long time ago now. It's like six years ago.
2: And then you, you, had, happened. you had Anthrax, too. I'm sure there was no problems with that. That probably went smooth. <laughs>
1: Anthrax, uh, I mean, Anthrax was... The thing about the big bands is that it's sometimes made easier by the fact that they have crew that's really pro. Yeah. So they'll, like, take care of everything. But, the uh, yeah, Megadeth. Megadeth was really easy. Anthrax, the only reason Anthrax is difficult was because they decided they wanted to play a midnight show um, a So they had played Friday night and then they wanted to play Saturday night at midnight and they brought their own fucking soundboard in and all this other shit. So we had to set all that shit up.
0: Mm.
1: And so there was 250 people online and it was one o'clock in the morning and they, and, and they insisted that everybody be frisked and like, you know, like the whole nine for security and so that it took forever to get people in people were blaming us and i was like it's not our fucking fault it's fucking <laughs> anthrax's fault fuck it. you know like I, what do you want me to fucking say about it you know like they're scared somebody's gonna shoot them i get it it's okay <laughs>
0: yeah right but because
1: yeah. uh, of the name probably yeah those, those i mean i know i know you oh, know for not- 10, 10 but like <laughs> the uh those guys are not those guys are not simple people
2: I, they're, they're complex, but they're worth it. I, I love those guys on, you know, that,
1: on Yeah, level. And, and they did a gra- they did a great show, and it was like, it was super nice, and Scott's been, Scott's been in a lot, Frank's been in a lot. Yeah. Um,
2: Bellow's the you best. You I, I really,
1: yeah, I mean, he's, he's a super nice guy, I, although, although, I, I have a friend of mine who used to be a, um, his bass tech, who said he was the biggest asshole ever, and that's the reason he quit. Ooh, who was it? A base tech, but, uh, uh so I can't. I don't want. Okay, say don't anything. say. We'll, we'll talk later. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't want. I don't want to fuck him up. Yeah. But uh, you know, like let's let's face it, uh, Texan roadies are having a tough time right now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah of course. Words. No, no, no. Of course. And um, it, the,
2: the thing about Frank and it's heat of the moment on stage, man. He does literally. You know, you've been on stage. He becomes a different person. And if he's going to get a base, and I'm sure your friend did, did a great job. Like, th- there's no bending with when they're on stage. And I get it. It's, it's a big time thing. That's what they bass. do for a living. Yes.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I did a, I toured with him when he was in helmet mm-hmm. and yes, which, which was a totally weird fucking lineup for helmet, honestly, but with Tempesta like, too. Yeah. Tempesta and, and, and Frank and, you know, trainer was, uh, trainer was playing with them.
0: Mm-hmm. It,
1: I mean, it was awesome. They were really good, but it was, it, it was a little weird. Like, you know, Frank was beating his chest in every song. And I'm like, all right, dude, Cool. I'm glad Black. you said we're chest. Grog shop. <laughs>
0: I thought you were gonna say something else.
2: Playing grog shop. Yeah. That, can I? That would have been rough. Can, can I tell the story about how we showed up at the grog shop and you had a new drummer and we didn't tell the old drummer yet?
1: Oh no! We no no we had told the old drummer. But he showed up. That was just the show. That, that was a show. He showed up to pick up his old drum set.
2: All right. Oh. That was uncomfortable. Because we we we. we
1: all right, let let me let me preface this story a bit so no. we were in the middle of we were in the middle of, of that helmet tour and our drummer quit and great drummer we not necessarily yeah it's it fantastic and then, you know're we're, we're friends now but I was very angry with him at the time because but you know now that I have a child I understood the pressure he was under but the um it's uh, we were we're in the middle of this tour and we're about to start the tour with corn like a week after the helmet tour he quits we're so now we're supposed to play in Salt Lake City, but on Halloween, but we cancel that show and we get a drummer flown in. We almost had Jason Gherkin, who plays in Shiner. Um, and he played in Hum too. He's like one of the best drummers ever, but he was all sorts of fucked up at the time and never he didn't have a phone, so we couldn't get in touch with him. Like we had seen him at the Casbah when we played, long story. Anyway, so Jen Littleton winds up finding this kid, Aaron Diodorian. He's 23 years old. She flies him out to Minneapolis, where we drove straight from Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, to Minneapolis, rehearsed with him for two days. And then our first show, so obviously we had to keep Ty's drum kit, our old drummer, because you know we were in the middle of a tour. Yeah. So whatever. So that, that's the story behind the drum kit being there. But our first show was actually at a place called Grumpy's in Minneapolis, Minnesota, mm-hmm. which is owned by the owner of Am- uh, Amphetamine Reptile Records. And, and I believe it's out of business now. But, so this is basically a bar, restaurant. It's not a, it's not a music venue. And it fit maybe 100 people. So Helmet, they move all these tables out. Helmet sets their shit up. We can't fit our gear on the, on the stage. So we play in the quote-unquote karaoke comedy room next door. <laughs> with our new drummer, who had only rehearsed with us for two days, <laughs> with no monitors Jeez. at all. It was... A shit show. So recently, Adam sent me a copy of that show. We, I guess, we recorded it on a boombox. It's phenomenal. We were fucking incredible. <laughs> it's fucking. I'm gonna. I'm actually. I'm actually fixing it up. I'm gonna put it on my Bandcamp. Oh great. Nice. Um, and put it out. It's. It sounds fucking great. And I, I was just like, I listened to. It. I. I literally was in tears listening to it. I'm like, oh my god, like I don't remember this being this good, but it was fucking. It was really, really like a a crazy situation, but so fast forward to the garage shop, Ty drove from uh, Port Jervis, New York where he lives to Cleveland to get his drum kit because we finally got a drum kit for Aram. which we then in turn after that show drove to uh, Tacoma, Washington to start uh, the corn tour Mm. for two months, which was good and bad. I got thrown off that tour twice. Did you, <laughs> for what? Uh, I called with out the bagpipes. A union lighting guy. <laughs> I, I, yeah, right. Yeah, I called out a union lighting guy um, for wanting money under the table for doing our lights,
0: mm. and
1: then he left us. He, he basically left us in the dark when I, you know, because we were getting paid five hundred dollars a night. Yeah. So it was like, how am I supposed to give you fucking money? And and uh, I called him out on stage, and the the all like everybody, all the union guys that were on that tour were like. You're an asshole. Blah blah blah. The production manager made me apologize. It was a shit show. It was like so fucking dumb, but it it turned out really good because his boss wound up doing our lights for the rest of the tour.
2: Oh, there you go. And we
1: and we gave him money at the end of the tour. But that tour sucked for us. It was fucking terrible. But I will say that John Davis is a really good guy. A great um, guy. The Chevelle guys are really good dudes. Brick and Benjamin, I could live without. Um,
2: the whole world could live without Dr. Uh, Benjamin uh, the, and their manager I I,
1: I, did, I tried out for them at one point. Wait, what? You know, it would be a good money gig. Uh, so I'm not gonna. I didn't oh, say that. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, and also, and Fieldy is the biggest douchebag on the planet. <laughs> owes me so 600 bucks.
2: Pay up, boy. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: he owes you 600 bucks. Yeah, walked out on a tip on a waitress. I can tell this story. I don't give a shit.
1: Uh, oh, that's quite. Yeah, dude that's just reflective of that asshole's personality. Yeah. And
2: she was, she was crying and everything like, dude, I'll pay it, you know, and it's something I couldn't put on my corporate card either because obviously it's, you know, so I, I just didn't want this girl to get fired, but.
1: It's, I, I, well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell one more story. <laughs> I, I, I have to go, I have to get home because my wife is doing Valentine's day flowers for her floral shop and okay. uh, whatever. Anyway, somebody has got to watch our child. Um, the, uh, so, we're like fieldy would do this thing where he would, he would, when you walked by him backstage, he would face the wall until you passed, (laughs) which was like, at first I thought it was a hazing thing. And then I was just like, you know, then, then you listen to Fieldy's dreams and you're kind of like, okay, (laughs) this guy's just an asshole. Um, the worst record ever made by the way. And like fucking. So one day we're backstage and our tour manager got in a fight. Squishy man got a fight with, with, Torn Storm manager, or somebody backstage, and Fieldy was there, and he said something really nasty. And so they walk in, so we were up in, we would run out of beer every single night. So we'd always end up in Corn's dressing room where they had tons of Coors Light. That's what they drank. Not John, but the rest of them. And we're like hanging out, and, and Justin comes in, and he's like, he tells me the story, and I'm like, fuck that fucking Fieldy guy. I'm so <laughs> fucking sick of this shit. And this is in Korn's dressing room, right? So the Chevelle guys are like, like their heads pop up, and they're like, dude, relax. And like John Davis turned to me and he goes, you should try being in a band with him.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Timing.
1: I'll say that might or might not have happened. And <laughs> on top of that, John, John goes, Hey man, you guys need anything? You okay? I was like, man, we keep running out of beer. That's why we show up here all the time. And he's like, he's like, all right, cool, man. I'll take care of you. The next day we were in the same dressing room as Skindred. And there was a huge cooler with a big sign two instruction, love corn filled with
2: beer. That's great. He is a great guy. (laughs) I don't like your music either, but he's a wonderful (laughs) dude. Well, Artie, I love you. You know that. And yeah, I was part of a a small part of your life with Joe and Marino and Tom and Ty, and I appreciate those times. Those are good times, man.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, And thank you for having me on here. It's like, I hope hope you're good, dude. Everything okay?
2: Everything's fantastic. Back into music now and doing the thing and, you know, we'll hook up again soon.
1: For sure, man. Yeah. Like uh, uh, you know, I could do I could do fucking three hours of stories.
2: I know, we're gonna do more because I I I need to hear more. I got I got
1: I got nothing to lose anymore, so you know, like I don't I don't need to keep quiet about anything. Yep, that's that's like everybody didn't know Marilyn everybody didn't know Marilyn Manson was a total piece of shit. I know, exactly. Everyone's surprised Oh Michael Jackson
2: Michael Jackson and molested kids? What? You know?
1: I know, right? Exactly. Marilyn Manson's a bad Marilyn Manson's a bad guy and, and a raging cokehead. head? Uh, yeah. I mean, who knew?
2: I had no idea. That's, that's crazy. Well, get, get back to your child. I'm glad to hear you have a child. Hope for the future. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Next time I'm out there awesome in the man. city, Thanks, I'll stop by again. Yeah, Great talking to you, man. Awesome. Man. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.